Well, it is a pleasure to be here speaking with you today. I think the preparation of getting ready for sermon makes me appreciate the people that do this with some regularity, like Jeff and Neil, and especially Kyle. So uh, I hope, you know, I know they're not looking for their own glory in any way, but um, I think, I hope we can appreciate how much labor goes into the kind of preaching that we appreciate at this church. All right, well, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, it is by grace and by grace alone that we come today. And we know we're not worthy to come before you, but through your gospel and through what Christ has done for us, we can. And so we look into your word today at just this idea of a fallen world, illness, and all the things we suffer, and we find hope where we uh, often have none, and we look at what's in front of us. So we're thankful today to look into your word and pray that you give us wisdom as we do that. In your name, amen. So many of you know I have worked for quite a few years as a family physician in Rapid City, and people come seeking my help for all kinds of things, and I've had a lot of opportunity to see how people respond to the threat or reality of physical illness. Illness, I think for all of us, causes us to focus on ourselves and our situation. The threat of pain or death directs our attention to finding relief or a cure. Our thoughts and our desires and our will all engage as we look to rid ourselves of the pain or cure the malady that threatens our life or health. In the passage we're looking at today, Paul talks about the wasting away of our bodies, of physical illness and suffering, and asks us to look at something that maybe isn't so obvious to us, as, for example, back pain or a migraine headache. No matter how much we exercise or eat a nutritious diet, or have wise health habits, our bodies are destined to waste away. But Paul is telling us that there is hope despite this fact. He is asking us to redirect our attention in the midst of suffering. He is telling us that there are unseen, eternal things that should be our focus when malady strikes. So what we're talking about here is a perspective on life in a fallen world where we deal with sickness, emotional difficulties, accidents, and pain of all kinds. And he helps us understand the truth of how bad things really are when it comes to our bodies and the things of the world. But he expands our perspective and asks us not to focus on those temporary things, but to focus on the glorious eternal things. He does this in this passage by helping us understand first who we are, second, what is happening, and third, how we should respond. So thank you, Gary, for reading all of chapter 4. We're going to focus on verses 16 through 18, the last three verses in this chapter. Okay, so here's the first question. Who are we? And verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul speaks here of the inner and outer self in the, in the ESV, or the inner or the outer man, as I'll call it. He is speaking of the nature, the makeup of us as humans. And it begs the question, what makes up a person? 
If we had the ability to take you apart figuratively and see what you are made of, what would we find? The technical term for this is anthropology, a word that literally means the study of man. We're going to spend a little time on this, and it might seem unnecessarily technical, but stick with me. This is a critical issue with profound implications for how we view ourselves and others. In fact, Dale Johnson, the executive director of ACBC, says there are three issues that we constantly face in biblical counseling. The first is sufficiency of scripture, the second is ecclesiology, and the third is this issue of anthropology. So it's worth us spending a few minutes here. Views on the nature of man is divided into three camps. Think of one, two, three. The prefix is mono, die, and try. Monism or monoism, which is the materialist, right? Dichotomism and trichotomism. So first is the, the monist or the materialist. This view proposes that we are composed of just one thing, our physical bodies. Humans are just a collection of chemicals, and the makeup of that collection explains everything that we see in man, including not only the physical body itself, but emotions, thoughts, desires, decisions, all that it means to be a human. The interaction of those various chemicals within the organs of the body produce love, anger, anxiety, compassion, everything. Obviously, materialists deny the existence of the soul. Next is the die to cotomist. This view sees the body as composed of two components, the inner man and the outer man, as it says in our passage today. That is, the body and the soul. It acknowledges the physical dimension of the materialist, but maintains there is an intangible component, what we would call the soul, that goes beyond the physical. And finally, the trichotomist. This view also sees man as having a material and immaterial dimension, but it divides the immaterial into two components, the soul and the spirit. So here we have three components, body, soul, and spirit. Okay, so when we look at our verse that we saw today, it suggests that there are two aspects to man. Though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed. So we find support here that the dichotomist view is correct, that the biblical view is that there are two aspects to man. We can also look to Genesis 2-7, where God's creation of man from the ground, material, and God breathing life into him, immaterial. There are other verses, but suffice it to say, we can make a good biblical case that the dichotomy is the correct view, or the correct biblical view. And why is this important? Why do we care? Well, taking either of the other views is unbiblical and thus fraught, with error and falsehood. The monist or the materialist sees nothing other than the physical realm. Therefore, anything spiritual, for example, the soul, is excluded. It goes without saying that this is unbiblical and wrong on so many levels. But the trichotomous position is trickier. While they acknowledge the presence of an immaterial inner man, they divide it into two components, the soul and the spirit. They believe that the soul is the psychological element that enables man to think and interact with people and the natural world. And the spirit is the religious element that perceives and responds to spiritual matters and to God. So here, the spirit is responsible for the vertical interaction with God and spiritual beings, while the soul is responsible for the horizontal matters related 
to man's experience with people and nature. In this view, the care of the soul is in the realm of psychology. The Greek word psyche actually means soul. It's where the word psychology came from. This view of man then sees soul care in the realm of psychology. If you have a soul problem, say anxiety or depression, then you need to see a mental health professional, that is, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. The pastor's job, on the other hand, is in the spirit realm, and this view would say that they should stay out of soul care. There are two verses that are used in support of the trichotomous view. Hebrews 4.12, which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of Lord Jesus Christ. And we might glance at these verses and ask if the trichotomous position is correct. But in fact, the Bible, our source for truth, does not teach this split in the inner man. These terms, soul and spirit, are used interchangeably in the Bible. And both terms indicate similar functions in relating with God, other people, and nature. So it's difficult to argue that they are distinct aspects of a person. As an example, if we turn to Luke 1, 46 through 47, that Kyle preached on a few months ago, we see the beginning of what is known as the Magnificat. And Mary here sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Greek words for soul and spirit here are used in parallel, indicating they are interchangeable and addressing the same entity. We might also note that it says here that her soul magnifies the Lord. It is interacting with God, something the trichotomous would say is not the function of the soul. There are other examples, but this is one place that we can show that the Bible does not teach this dividing of the inner man. But what about the verses we read above that talk about the division of the soul and spirit, and your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless? Does that prove the dichotomous position? Well, let's look at Luke 10:27, where we see Jesus says we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Should we conclude from this verse there are four parts to man? No, that verse does not imply they are different parts of a person. And the description of soul and spirit in the above verses do not either. Ascribing to this notion of trichotomy can lead to all kinds of error and foolishness, including churches that affirm things that are expressly condemned in the Bible, like homosexuality. When we turn soul care over to psychology and rely on psychological theories instead of God's word to find truth, we end up teaching and promoting things that are not only unwise, but just plain evil. Now, I'm not saying all psychology is evil, okay? Or that psychologists do not intend to help people. They most certainly do. But psychology, in this day and age, has unfortunately become a powerful tool of Satan, promoting in many cases what he loves most, lies and deceit. We need to look no further than the wave of transgenderism that is sweeping our country. This is a lie that is dressed up in psychological terms and pseudoscience to make it look like a legitimate disorder. 
Look at verse 4 of our passage where we can see Paul describe this. Here he says, "In In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Can we not see how the God of this world, Satan, has taken on the mantle of science through the discipline of psychology and blinded the minds of so many people? We can find churches throughout this country that ascribe to this view, and I don't think we have to walk very far out the front steps of this church to find a church like that, who I believe that are serving the God of this world instead of the God of the Bible. So I hope you can see why I spent some time on this. This question of anthropology is fundamental to how we view ourselves and to see the world around us. Getting this wrong is very, very hazardous. And it also has profound implications for how we preach and the counsel we give to each other. Okay, so let's get back to this verse that we have in front of us. This verse, as we've said, appears to see us as made up of two components, as we said, an outer man and an inner man. So let's ask, what does Paul mean by these terms? First, let's talk about the outer man. What is the outer man? Well, it's obviously our body, right? Our substance, the part of us we can touch, study, operate on, give medicine to. It's what belongs to the world. It is temporary and crumbling. It was formed from dust, and it will return to dust. It was made in the image of God, but like all creation, has been tainted by the fall. Adam's body was made sinless and deathless, but sin brought dramatic change to the human body. Decay and death entered the picture, so that now we have a lowly body, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3, and a body of death that serves the law of sin, as he talks about in Romans 7. So although the outer man is temporary and fallen, all believers will receive a new imperishable body. Look forward to that, as it says in Philippians 3.21. Okay, so that's what the outer man is. Let's ask, what is happening to it? Well, Paul, Paul says here, it is wasting away. As much as we hate to admit it, the outer man is not permanent, but destined to, be, to decay. It is perishable. I see this all day long in my office. From the time we are born, we are in a constant state of aging that we're all familiar with, either personally or by observing those around us. The dermatologists and plastic surgeons in my practice do their best to reverse this inexorable process, but their work is never as good as God's, and time always reverses any progress that they make. Sometimes people go to extreme lengths to try to reverse the aging process. We can probably all picture some famous people who have tried. But there is no escaping the wasting of the outer man. I'll have you turn for a moment to Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes is a book in the middle of the Bible just after Proverbs. It's not a book we go to frequently, but we'll show here that the Bible is honest about the aging process. And it is described in vivid detail here. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come 
and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. But for the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, tremors, right? And the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. Have you seen that, Dan? The grinders? And those who look through the windows are dimmed, wearing reading glasses here, and the doors on the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. That's white, right? The almond tree. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. <laughs> we see here in vivid metaphor the aging process. So the Bible holds us face to face with the facts. We are on a journey. This earthly body is, in fact, wasting away. If we desire another illustration of this process, we can go back to the author of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul. His own body was decaying. He was old before his time. But he doesn't try to evade this fact. He's facing it. He understood that life is a vapor, here for a little while, and then vanishes. Despite this, Paul was not focused on his outer man, like we are so prone to do. His focus was on the other aspect of our being, the inner man. So let's look now at that other aspect of our being. The inner man, what is it? Well, as I've said, the inner man is the soul. It is the biblical heart, our thoughts, our mind, our desires, our emotions, our motives, our will. It is the soul that lives forever. In salvation, it is reborn. It is a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But unfortunately, even our inner man does not escape from the effect of sin. The noetic effect of sin, as it's called, that is, the effect of sin on our thinking, is a reality that we all have to deal with. Okay, so that's what the inner man is. Let's ask, what is happening to the inner man? Well, Paul says in this verse that it is being renewed day by day. In direct contrast with the decay of the outer man is the growth and maturing of this inner man. It is constantly being renewed by sanctifying grace. So here we have a paradoxical and encouraging truth. When believers are physically weak and at the end of their own resources, they are in a place where they can be made spiritually strong. Look at 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul talking, right? For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can turn to the Old Testament and see another passage that addresses this. In Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 28, a wonderful passage. Many of you will be familiar with it. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator 
of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We again here see God taking weak, suffering people and making them strong. So Paul here is saying that life's trials and tribulations are serving to build inner strength. How? Because they drive believers to humbly, prayerfully, hopefully depend on God. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says that even in our suffering, God himself strengthens and restores our inner man. Doesn't promise physical healing. <laughs> Actually, we are promised the opposite. We will waste away. But for the Christian, as we waste away, something good is happening to the inner man. Let's refer back to Paul. As Paul's outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, his inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. Get that? As Paul's outward life is conforming to the crucified Christ, his inward life is conforming more closely to the glorified Christ. Most couldn't see the transformation in Paul because they only looked at the outer surface. And this led to the criticism he received and to him writing this book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians defending his ministry. But the transformation was taking place nonetheless. And Paul makes this clear to his readers. Okay, so that's the first point, a summary of who we are from verse 16. Our dichotomous nature, our outer man, and the inner man. Let's move now on to our second point, which is, what is happening? In verse 17, it says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <clears throat> Paul speaks here of a light, momentary affliction. Light and momentary? What does Paul mean by this? Let's look first at Paul's suffering. Look up in verse 8 of this chapter. Here Paul was afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And if we move later in the book to chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, <clears throat> He gives us a vivid insight into his own suffering. Get this. Far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through a many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, 
often without food, in cold, in exposure. Does that sound like light and momentary affliction to you? What about your suffering? Does it seem light, seem light and momentary? When you're suffering with severe pain, does it seem light? When you have a chronic, long-term illness that goes on for years, does it seem momentary? Well, here's how Paul sees it. Our affliction should be viewed through heaven's eyes. He says that the present, with its tribulation, is brief and trifling compared to what God has in store for believers. As commentator David Garland put it, on earth, our afflictions seem never-ending, while the more sublime moments seem to pass by in a flash. Looking at things from the vantage, of, vantage point of God's view puts everything, including affliction, in its true perspective. When we understand what God has in store for us as believers, our current suffering seems brief and trifling in comparison. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. Let's move to the next words in this verse. It says, our light and momentary affliction is preparing. This is the Greek word katergazomai, to accomplish, to work fully, to cause. It means our suffering is actually producing something. As we experience trials, it is producing something else. What is it producing? It says it is producing an eternal weight of glory. Our trials and troubles have a positive effect because they're actually producing something, an eternal weight of glory. And there is therefore a direct correlation between suffering in this life and glory in the next. The greatest glory went to he who endured the greatest suffering as Paul speaks of in Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. <clears throat> the weight of glory awaiting believers is beyond the possibility of overstatement. Or, exaggerate, or exaggeration. It is beyond all comparison. So hold on to this idea of eternal weight of glory for a moment. We'll come back to it. But first, let's go to our third point, which is, how are we to respond? Verse 18 says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The answer to the question of how to respond is this. We must look. We must, by an act of the will, focus our attention on what we know to be true. A focus on eternal heavenly realities is not automatic. It requires effort on a believer's part. It only happens as we look. We must look, that is, we must focus our attention in the right direction, not at the things that are seen, 
but at the things that are unseen. Okay, so first Paul says to focus not on the things that are seen, the temporal things. What do we mean by temporal? Well, the word temporal is anything that is not eternal, right? Everything that is temporary. This obviously includes not only our bodies, but also everything we can see and enjoy in this world. This includes things we don't want to lose, like our health, yes, but also our house, our truck, oxygen, water, Dr. Pepper, dark chocolate, ice cream, the wonderful sourdough bread Teresa has been making the last few years. I really wish that one wasn't temporary, etc. It also includes things we would love to get rid of, such things as pain, anxiety, fear, depression, and grief. All of these things are temporary. They are temporal. They are seen. And Paul says we should not focus on them. But this is very difficult for us not to focus here. These temporal things are very important to us and cry out for our attention. And they are, in fact, the types of things Paul is encouraging us not to focus on in the midst of suffering. What then should we focus on? Paul calls us to turn our focus toward that which is unseen and eternal. What does he mean by unseen and eternal? Well, we return now to the previous verse which said our afflictions were producing something. And that something was an eternal weight of glory. A weight of glory that is not temporary, but lasts forever. What is this weight of glory that he's speaking of? Although Paul does not answer this question directly in this passage, we can look at the context to get an idea. Turn back in 2 Corinthians to chapter 3. One of the principles we learned in our master's degree was repetition of words. When in a passage you see a word repeated multiple times, pay attention. The author is communicating something through that repetition. As we read this passage, see if you can find the word that Paul keeps, keeps coming back to, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. I think you can see the word <laughs> glory. It is repeated ten times in this short passage. And what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament law, the ministry of death, as he called it, called it being so glorious that Moses had to put a veil on his face after receiving it. The Israelites couldn't even gaze on him after he received the law. That's some kind of glory. But he goes on to say that, in fact, the law had no glory at all because of a glory that surpasses it. What is that glory? It is what he calls the ministry of righteousness, that is, the new covenant 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think we can conclude from this that the eternal weight of glory that Paul speaks of in chapter 4 is referring to this gospel, that God in his mercy sent his son to die for the sins of fallen men and be raised from the dead to redeem them from that sin and therefore justify, that is, proclaim innocent, his elect, which he chose before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal weight of glory that he is speaking of. There's many other places in the Bible we could look to examine this glory, but let's turn to Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, to get a picture of this. This is glorious for sure. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall, be, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And jumping down to verse 22, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. <clears throat> the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see here a vivid picture of our destiny as believers. When we look at what God says here, we're blown away by its glory. How glorious it will be to live in that place, no? That is an eternal weight of glory. Do you agree? These are just two verses that speak about that eternal weight of glory. There are many others we could turn to. So now we see in this passage that we've been examining today that Paul is giving us an assignment. He is asking us to do something. He is instructing us on how to live wisely, how to live in a godly way. And here's what Paul is telling us to do. He says, we must focus on what is true, on what is eternal. We're always focused on something, right? And so often, as we've said, we focus on these earthly temporary things, and they cry out for our attention, but Paul is telling us to focus on something that is not so obvious, that is not necessarily crying out to us. He is asking us to turn our focus, our attention, from the things of this world and turn our attention to this eternal weight of glory, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonderful eternal destiny he has planned for those whom he calls his children. And where do we find everything we need to know about this glory? Well, we find it in the pages of Scripture, in his word, whereas 2 Peter 1.3 says we find everything we need for life and godliness.
this point, let's look back at our original passage and go back to the beginning in verse 16 and look at some words we skipped before. So we do not lose heart. Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever feel like giving up? Do you ever long for the day when all the suffering and trials of this life will end? I certainly do. All of us experience this as we endure the trials of this life. But as we said above, our author Paul experienced trials that none of us are likely to experience, and yet he says, we do not lose heart. He says it up in verse 1 as well. He is telling us not to lose hope, not to be discouraged by the wasting away of our bodies, by the daily trials and suffering that come from living in a fallen world. And he gives us a path toward that hope. It requires the orientation of one's life away from the things that are seen to those, to, toward those that are not seen. When we focus our attention on Christ, we are not discouraged or distracted by outward circumstances. As David Garland again says, Paul expresses supreme confidence that the present mortification of his outer person will culminate in glorious transformation, in a heavenly body which earthly words and image strain to describe but can never fully capture. Paul's supreme confidence in God's promise, in God's power, rips away the veil of suffering and tears that otherwise would blind him to the glorious heavenly existence that comes after death. This too, then, should be our hope. When we understand God's promises and God's power and by an act of the will, focus on his glory and the glorious heavenly existence that awaits us, we will not be discouraged. We will have hope, and that hope will last for eternity. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the hope that you give us in your gospel and for the glorious wonderful, eternal destiny that you have planned for us. Lord, as we live in this fallen world, we experience trouble. You prom promised us that. And Lord, we all know what that's like. Lord, help us to turn our focus away from the temporary things and to focus on the glorious, eternal things. In Jesus' name, amen.